And uh, the series that I've begun is Living in the Dimension Beyond Average. Say that, Living in the Dimension Beyond Average. Text is found in Acts 2, 42 through 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. Now, there are a number of things that we could read, as I pointed out last week in this. Just read over it and not even notice that the scripture is telling us this. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at this, this profound thing that exists in us, that we can read the most astonishing things and just never really realize how astonishing they are. Um, and I point this out because, for example, said all the believers... Tell me when you've ever got 100% cooperation in anything. It just doesn't happen. They devoted themselves, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, into prayer. Tell me when 100% of the church ever prays. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed, quote, many miracles, miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, and shared everything they had. But you hadn't seen that done lately. Shared everything they had? Really. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. <laughs> we all like to think we're generous. <laughs> Maybe drop a dollar or two in the little kettle at Christmas time for the Salvation Army. But sell your property and give with those, to those in need. They worship together in the temple each day. That's pretty extraordinary. As a pastor, I can tell you it is. Because most folk, you know, you're doing good to get them there one, one time a week, and some think that's really overdoing it. But every day? You say, well, they had all kind of time then. I'm so busy now. Are you kidding me? I was raised on a farm. My grandfather got up at 4.30 in the morning, went to bed not long after the sun went down in the evening. They worked hard. In rural communities, they didn't have any labor-saving devices, none. Ladies washed clothes by hand, all of that kind of thing. And yet, even though the times that the Scripture mentions that this is occurring were almost identical to the kind of circumstances that I was raised in as a small child in a rural community, they went to the house of God every day. Every day. And not only that, found the time to meet in one another's homes together for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. In fact, not just the people, all the people, which is in itself amazingly remarkable, considering that only a few days before they had crucified the founder of this faith. And something happened that turned all of the animus and the hatred and the scorn that people had for this new religion, 180 degrees the opposite direction. I mean, if they crucify the founder of the thing and you're a follower, that doesn't bode well for your future, does it? But amazingly, God turned all of that around. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. People lined up to become a part of the church. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand how profoundly impacted these new believers were by their newfound experience and how they in turn profoundly impacted the world. What are the keys to this? 
What are the secrets that you hold in Scripture, the mysteries that if we could only ponder them and discover the truth that is hidden here would help us to also experience lives that are extraordinary, but especially lives that in turn impact the world the way they did. I ask you to open your word to our understanding today and give us the hearts and minds to be able to receive it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, shout it out loud, amen. Last week, I pointed out that God deliberately chose ordinary men and women with whom to begin his church. That's not where most folk would go. As I mentioned, we're going to have a men's conference, and I hope to see that become an annual event. As we pull together resources to launch that conference, I'm careful to try to bring in the heaviest hitters I can because I want it to start right. Ask Donald Trump if rollout is not important. (laughs) When they rolled out the immigration thing here not long ago, because it was not clearly defined, ground to a screeching halt. Rollout's always important. And you would think that God, in rolling out the church, would have selected people that certainly would have caused by their fame, their name recognition, their gifts, their talents, that he would have selected those who caused the church to get off on the best footing possible. Instead, he chose 120 people that were extraordinarily average, very average. Everyone from the apostles to the rest of the 120 gathered in the upper room were literally, and here it is again, average in every way. The Pharisees even made that observation about them. As I mentioned last Sunday, Acts 4.13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see they were ordinary men. We don't like that title. We don't want anyone to use that adjective to describe us, ordinary. But yet that's the very adjective found in the scripture to describe those who founded the early church. And that is spoken in regard to its leaders. Amen. It said they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And I'm sure that they were not all the best looking on the basis of this. I could say they were not the most talented And probably not even the brightest. And even today, just very candidly and truthfully, you know, thank God, God doesn't require as an entry requirement that we be the best looking or the most talented or the brightest or some of us might not make it into the kingdom, you know. It's like a woman decided to go to church one Sunday morning and she absolutely loved it. The people were so friendly. She enjoyed the worship was deeply impacted and touched by the sermon. It was such an incredible experience that she decided to give her heart to the Lord that very morning, and she did. And afterwards, she was so overwhelmed with joy that she stopped at the bookstore and bought a Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker. You've seen those. She was at a red light on the way home and was busy getting into something from her, uh, in her purse, and she didn't notice the light turned green. And she said, do you know the man behind me loved Jesus too? Because he started honking his horn when he saw my bumper sticker. And in fact, I looked back and he was pointed up at the heavens like, I'm going to heaven too. Said, in fact, all the other cars, I was so amazed. 
they pulled up behind him and they started honking their horns too. Everybody loved Jesus. I was so happy. She said, I leaned out the window and shouted at everybody, I love Jesus too. And she said, one man was so overcome with emotion. He said, Jesus Christ. You know, she said, we had such a good time that when I drove off through the intersection, I was the only one who made it before the light turned red again. And they were still honking their horns when I drove away. So I turned and went and waved at everybody. (laughs) She might not have really known what was going on right there. These ordinary people became extraordinary. And the key to understanding how they did so is found in the next phrase of the verse that I just read. For it says, they also, the Pharisees, And the Sadducees, for that matter, who were members of the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Israel, they recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And as I said last Sunday, ah, ah, ah. That's what made the difference. Because you cannot walk with Jesus and remain the same. We also read that something else happened. Between Acts chapter 1, where they gathered in the upper room, and the end of Acts chapter 2, or the first four verses of Acts chapter 2, and it tells us there that those people in the upper room were all, ordinary though they were, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Ordinary men and women who were transformed by the Spirit of an extraordinary God who took up residence within them. Ordinary people went went on to live extraordinary lives. They literally lived in the dimension beyond average. The verses that I've read from the end of Acts chapter 2 tell us some of the things they did that I believe caused them to live such amazing lives. Because the truth of the matter is ordinary people don't always become extraordinary. And even spirit-filled believers don't always live extraordinary lives. And may I also say that even extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts, don't always do amazing things. There are in these verses at the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 2, there are 16 things the scripture mentions specifically one by one after another that these disciples did. And I'm quite certain that one reason so many believers do not experience extraordinary lives is because these things mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 2 are often absent from the lives of so many believers. And as a result, those things that made their lives amazing, being absent in our lives, keep us locked into the dimension of the mediocre and the average. Verse number 42 says, all the believers devoted themselves, and then it lists after that 14 additional things. You've got to look for them Because two of them are right there, all the believers, and then devoted themselves. All, and then devoted. All speaks of extraordinary unity. Because you can't get 100 people in a room, or much less 120, and get them to agree on anything 100%. It speaks of an amazing degree of unity that apparently the early church was walking in. And secondly... It says they were all devoted to the other 15 things. Devoted. 
That's passion. I would like for us to look more closely a little later in this series at the other things that remain, but today I want to talk about those two, all which implies and suggests great unity, and I want to talk about the word devotion as it was lived out in their lives, which speaks of them dedicating themselves seriously to the pursuit of the things of God. Before we do, let's first look at whether or not it's possible to live beneath the level God intended for us to live. That as believers, even filled with the Holy Spirit, it's altogether possible, and it happens every single day, and maybe it's happening to some of us and maybe many of us in this room, but it's altogether possible to live beneath the level that God intended for you to experience. I know that we already know the answer that it is possible, but I want to build my case beginning with a question. I want to ask you this, what keeps you from being the best you can be? What is it? What keeps you locked into the dimension called average that doesn't allow you to go beyond it? What keeps you from fulfilling your dreams and living a life that like the disciples will be remembered long after you are gone? For trust me, in that day they had great sports figures too. The Olympic Games were, were something that everybody looked forward to. And they had great and extraordinary athletes. But you won't remember their names, and history doesn't either. There were wealthy business people without computers and smartphones and without a stock market and without any of the other things that might help them. There were men who became extraordinary businessmen and women and built huge empires. History doesn't mention their names either. There were people that were extremely gifted, gladiators who could fight in the Colosseum in Rome, men of war, scarred, battle-hardened. We don't remember their names either. But yet, 120 ordinary people, those names that were mentioned, are still remembered to this very day. They impacted the world. And you can too. We always think though that when it comes to this question about what keeps me from being all that I am supposed to be and created to be, we always think that people are lured off the track because they were lured away by some really big temptation or forced to turn aside by some really big obstacle or problem. Surely if they give up on their dreams, undoubtedly they must have done so for a really good reason, right? And if they're going to fall short, we always reason that people fall short because something worthwhile got in their way. Guess what? That's simply not true. It was the mystic and theologian Thomas Merton who said, the biggest human temptation is to sell out for too little. Too little. We actually find that happening and the passage in the Old Testament from the book of Numbers chapter 32. And, and the reason the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the wilderness into the promised land is so significant is because it describes the Christian journey. But I want you to watch what happened now. In Numbers 32, 1 through 7. 
Now, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Gezer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, and it names these leaders, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Now watch this. Do not take us over the Jordan. This was on the wilderness side of Jordan and not in the promised land. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? And they did actually tempt others to not go because Joseph, there's no tribe in Israel called the tribe of Joseph, yet he, yet he was one of the sons of, of Jacob. Instead, Joseph had two sons, one named Ephraim and one named Manasseh. And joining in with Reuben, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh said, sounds cool to us too. We don't want to go over Jordan either. And here is what is amazing. God chose this land for Israel, and God himself described it as a land that flowed with milk and honey. How many of you know that when God chooses something, he chooses the best? Amen. That's why you can trust that what God has chosen for you is far better than anything you'll ever choose for yourself. And I'm always amazed at people that don't serve God or are afraid to, to, to be all in in the kingdom because they're afraid that if they do so, that somehow it's going to cost them something they don't want to give up. That God's going to give them something of lesser value if they really make a commitment. And I, I always look at that and, and think, are you kidding me? Do you really think the God of glory who designed the world we live in and the universe in which our world is placed in choosing your future for you would choose a future that's not as good as what you would choose for yourself? Jeremiah 29 and 11, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. If God chooses it, it's good. I need somebody to say amen. What many Bible believers have never realized is that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh actually that day made a decision to not receive their inheritance in the promised land. They second-guessed God and selected to instead inherit on the wilderness side of Jordan. They decided to not cross over to receive their promise in the land that God had chosen for them. And they looked at the land just before the Jordan River and said, this is good enough. We'll settle here. Don't even need to see the rest of it. This is all I want right here. And how many people do the very same thing? They stop short of what God has in store for them. But I want you to notice in just a moment that it didn't make things any easier for them that they stopped short of their objective. Moses insisted that they first cross over with the rest of Israel and fight to help the rest of Israel obtain their inheritance. And then, if they still wanted to settle back on the other side of Jordan, the wilderness side, 
Moses said, you can go do it then. Numbers 32, 20 through 23. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land, he says, is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. How many times have you heard that verse? People always quote it, be sure your sin will find you out. It's amazing that they never look at the context, because the context is people not going out robbing banks, not living immoral lives. It's not that people here are committing murder and heinous crimes. You know what the, that, that statement is made in the context of? It's made in the context of Israel not doing what God had called them to do and moving into the promise that God had created for them, their promised land. And here's what's astonishing about this. Not only did God call it a sin, But Moses, their leader, said, if you will go over and fight with us, and you want to come back, and you want to dwell on this side of Jordan, which isn't nearly as good as the other side, you can. I really think that what Moses was doing was hoping that once they got over there, they would say, hey, (laughs) you know, guys, we were shortchanging ourselves. Let's not go back there. Let's stay here. But Moses said, if you'll fight, you can go back and settle for second best. And you know why this is astonishing? It points out a truth that I wish every person could learn. Amen. And you know what that is? Stopping short of your objective does not make it easier for you. They still had to pay the same price that everyone else had to pay. They still had to fight the same giants, go through the same battles, come up against the same cities with walls. They sit as high as the heaven. And just because they compromised their goals and settled for less than what they had started out to obtain, it wasn't any easier for them than it was for those who did not compromise, but who persisted on getting everything God had in store for them. And guess what? It's never any easier just because you compromise. There is always a price to pay to obtain your dream, but there's also a price to pay if you don't. I wish I had an amen. Ask anyone who's ever had to live with the thoughts of what might have been, who looks back over their lives and says, this is what could have happened. In my opinion, the cost of surrendering your dream is greater than the price you pay if you pursue it. And that's true even if you fall short after having given it your best shot and don't quite make it there. At least you get to live knowing I did everything I could. But if you compromise, you will pay the price for not succeeding every day for the rest of your life. Moses warned that if you don't cross over, you will discourage the rest of the people of God, just as the 12 spies had done 40 years previously. And God will be very displeased if you do that. 
Because that's what happens when you begin to accept mediocrity instead of what God has for you. Inevitably, others begin to settle for less than they should as well. And that's when the half-tribe of Manasseh joined in with Reuben and Gad. You see, when you don't pray, someone else is discouraged and doesn't think prayer is all that important. And when you don't come to the house of God regularly, somebody else looks at that and says, they don't have to, I don't either. And you don't tithe, somebody else says, no big deal. I don't have to either. You don't worship, you don't read your Bible. And you know what happens? It spreads like a contagious disease through the body of Christ. And this is what Moses was warning against. And this is why I'm talking about the two profound truths from the 16 that the early church embraced that made them so uniquely powerful. They did what they did together. They were a unified body, not fractured and divided. And they did it with great passion. The unity created by the pursuit of excellence. When you stop pursuing excellence, that unity is violated and broken. And somebody else is tempted to settle for less than what they should too. It was the same extraordinary unity present in Israel that we actually see described as existing in the early church in Acts chapter 2. And I want to tell you, The day we live in today is beyond any doubt the most divided I've ever seen in the history of our nation. It may be that there were times before I was born that the nation was more divided, but I kind of doubt it. As God's people, we are supposed to stand as a model, united to show the rest of the nation how they should be and live. We're to stand against division based on anything, really, whether it's racism or or pride or any other form of arrogance or sin. And like Israel, if we begin to allow division within our ranks, it discourages the rest of the body of Christ. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12 and 25. He knew the thoughts of those that were around him, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. There's a phrase they use often in Africa, the leaders do, and they laugh. If you've not been to Africa very much, and I've been hundreds of times, go there every week. I can tell you without a doubt, having been in 102 different nations in the world, that the nations of Africa, the continent of Africa, has more resources, is more abundant in resources than any other continent on the face of this planet. And I can also tell you emphatically that its people are suffering more than any other continent on the face of the planet. Why? There are five major problems that exist in Africa that are well known. One of them is grafting corruption. Another is poor governance. Another is tribalism. Another is lack of education. The other is poverty and disease. And here is what is astonishing. Even the people of the country know this is happening. The leaders, when they get in power, Instead of sharing the resources and the wealth of the continent with its people, they begin to take it for themselves. Ask anybody in this room that is from Africa, and we have many in the church that that are from Africa. I mean, not way back yonder. I mean, people who were born in Africa. 
and the leaders become enriched. And you know what they always do? They always, if there are many tribes in Africa. Somebody asked me just uh, yesterday, a man that I met from Iceland, he's a businessman, and, and we've been on a number of the same flights together, and we've become friends. And, and he said, do you speak Swahili? He told me he was raised in Tanzania, and he'd speak Swahili. And I said, no, I've never found a reason for me to learn, because everybody I meet knows six or seven languages. And if I learn one, I've only just started, you know. I will speak all these other languages. And he laughed and he said, you know, that's absolutely true. Many, many different tribes and many dialects that are spoken. But when you get in power, you cut all the other tribes off and you only allow people from your tribe to ascend to the highest positions and the most lucrative posts and opportunities are given to them. Tribalism. What is that? It's a form of racism that exists even though it's people of the same color, same blood. And you can always find something to divide us. You can always find some reason to be separate. You can always find something you don't like in somebody. You can always find plenty of things because I don't agree with everybody. I'm not even sure I always agree with myself. Amen. <laughs> Amen. But a house divided can't stand. And whether it's a church, whether it's a city, whether it's a government, whether it's a nation, if you're the enemy, what you do is you focus as much attention as you can on division because you know what happens when you do that? It gets worse. Focus attention on the problem. It gets bigger. I'll never forget as a child, the first time anybody connected to our family died and they died of a heart attack. And I didn't know what that was. And I made the mistake of asking, what's a heart attack? <laughs> and they made the mistake of telling me. From that time forward, I had heart problems. I just knew I did. <laughs> Come on, help me out. Have you ever laid in bed at night and listened to your own heartbeat? What does it start doing? It gets faster. Somebody's just told you somebody died of a heart attack. Your heart is boom, boom, boom. And then it skips a beat, which everybody's does. But you know, oh, Jesus, here I come, Elizabeth, right now. You know, like Fred Sanford. You focus on something, it always gets worse. That's just a truism of life. These truths about unity and being passionate are especially important as we celebrate this 4th of July weekend. Extended weekend. Our nation has been blessed beyond measure because we have embraced unity rather than division. Hyperbolus unum. Out of many one. We should remember the men and women of every race and creed who have sacrificed their lives to bring us to where we are today. This is the 4th of July. And we live in a time when they don't want you to salute the flag. People think it's cool to remain seated during the Pledge of Allegiance, dishonor veterans, and the sacrifices of many who went before them, I just flat think that's wrong. And you burn a flag, you're disgracing everybody that ever shed their blood that you had the right to even light a match. Amen. And that's absolutely how I feel. 
I love this nation. And we have been blessed, like I said, beyond measure. There's a queue of people lined up trying to get into America. But have you noticed there's no queue of where people are trying to get out? Years ago, we had the privilege of having Medal of Honor winner Master Sergeant Roy Benavides come and speak for us right here at Christian Tabernacle on the on a 4th of July Sunday. And we were just a small congregation. It was right after I came here. It was an honor for me to shake his hand and have him on this same platform with me. Roy Benavides is without a doubt the single most courageous man I've ever met in my life. You look him up and you'll see why I say that. People go see movies about made-up, fictional, Marvel comic book heroes. But Roy was the real deal. I thought about bringing in this Sunday somebody else that maybe is more current in terms of some of our, the battles our nation has fought. But I don't know them. But I knew Roy. And I met Roy. And he came and spoke for us. And after Roy received the Medal of Honor for the rest of his life, he traveled speaking in churches and schools and civic organizations and before groups of the military. And like I said, I'm aware these days that there are those who don't believe we're supposed to be patriotic. They say being patriotic, have you heard this? It's too nationalistic. I'm supposed to love your own country. Hello. That dishonors the people who fought to give you the country. People like Roy Benavides are the reason that this nation exists, and we even have the, the privilege of gathering here on Sunday morning to worship. He embodied the concepts of unity and devotion. We are a nation made up of many different nationalities. I've told you a little of my own heritage, mother, my mother's side, Cajun French out of Nova Scotia, traced all the way back to, to, to France, settled in the swamplands of Louisiana, intermarried with runaway slaves and the American Indians and the leftover Spanish and Italian people who had settled and remained there after the days of the conquistadors and the explorers. All of that's in my family. On my mama's side, on my daddy, different story. My dad's father came by way of Norway through Ireland. And whatever picked up along the way, my dad's mom, American Indian. In short, I'm just a little bit of everything that's in this building. And maybe then some. And you know what? Happy about it. And I hear people say, why don't you worship with your own kind? And I say, just exactly what kind is that? Because where am I going to fit? I either fit everywhere or I don't fit anywhere. It's just that simple. But I'm not unique. That's just Americans and that's who we are. And Roy embodied the concepts of unity that transcended the things that would normally divide us. And he embodied devotion. For a few minutes I want you to let, I want you to listen as he tells his story in his own words. And he shares the reasons for what he did that caused him to win our nation's most coveted award for bravery. I think you will understand when he gets through why unity and passion are so vital in making your life count because had it not been for those two things, we never would have heard of Roy Benavides.
I uh, started out my career as a National Guardman in El Campo, Texas. I lived there. I retired. I was born in Cuero, the turkey capital of the world. Like a fool, I dropped out of school, and I'm not proud of it. I wanted to learn a skill. I wanted money in my pocket. I wanted good clothes. I wanted to have a car. And I learned early in life that why dig a ditch when you can supervise the digging. <laughs> so I joined the Texas National Guard. Raul Roy Benavidez began a long and illustrious military career in the Texas Army National Guard during the Korean War. By 1965, Benavidez had joined the Army's 82nd Airborne Division and was on his way to South Vietnam to act as an advisor to an Arvin Infantry Regiment. I stepped on a landmine my first trip to Vietnam. I woke up at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. I was declared never to walk again. I was paralyzed from the waist down. So I used to slip out of bed at night and I'd crawl to a wall and I sat against the wall and I backed myself up against the wall and stand there trying to move my toes right and left, right and left. And I begged God to please help me. Seven months later, I walked out of that hospital. I walked out with a limp, but I walked out. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I made three parachute jumps in one day, and I was ready, physically and mentally fit, to go back to Vietnam. In April of 68, I was inserted deep behind lines with another friend of mine to gather intelligence information of the enemy. My buddy in the second day got shot through the eye, the face, and the back, and I didn't want to leave him behind. So I called in for an extraction helicopter to come in and get us out. They come in with what we call a McGuire rig. It's nothing but a piece of rope that picks you up from danger to safety. In this case, there was two pieces of rope. And we have what we call a belly man. In this case, it was Leroy Wright. Sergeant Wright and I had been together for years. He couldn't look out that helicopter as we were coming out the canopy of the jungle. Our ropes had twisted. You know what nylon rope does when it rubs? It burns. And Sergeant Wright, a black non-commissioned officer, he looked out and he saw that two ropes were twisted and they were burning. He tied himself with what we call a belly band and he pulled himself out of the helicopter. He worked himself down those two ropes and he untangled those two ropes. That's love, a fellow man, dedication. And when I found out that Leroy Wright's team was trapped, I volunteered to go in and to get him out. On May 2nd, 1968, Benavidez was at a forward operating base in Loch Ninh when word arrived of a 12-man intelligence gathering team that had been pinned down by superior NVA forces. Three helicopters had already attempted to extract them, but were unable to land due to intense enemy fire. Racing to board a fourth rescue helicopter and realizing that all of the team's members were either wounded or dead, Benavidez directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing and leapt from the hovering vehicle to assist. Armed only with a knife and his medical bag, Benavidez ran approximately 75 meters under withering enemy fire and was hit several times in the attempt. 
Despite his own injuries, Benavidez administered aid to wounded team members and carried or dragged the others to the safety of the extraction helicopter. He also made certain to recover the fallen sergeant's body and secure the classified documents he was carrying. But while making his way back, the helicopter pilot was hit and the aircraft crashed. Now critically injured, Benavidez fought his way back to the wreckage, where he struggled desperately to free the wounded, form a defensive perimeter, and direct airstrikes to allow another rescue landing to be attempted. But it would be hours from the start of the action before that help would arrive. I spent six hours in pardon the expression, God, in hell. I got shot five times. I was hitting the mountains with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. I was bayoneted on both arms. Helicopters after helicopters came in to get us out. The last helicopter that came to get us out, these officers, dedicated men like you, men and women, these officers, four of them volunteered to come and get us out. Our life was in their hands. This is dedication that we have with one another. When they pulled me out, they said that I was holding my intestines in my hand. I don't remember. I was so scared, so tired, that they let me lay on the floor of that chopper. And blood was flowing all around us. When we pulled up, blood was flowing out like an open socket. When we landed, and they started identifying the bodies, they found out that I loaded three dead enemy soldiers by mistake. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. And so they let me lay next to the enemy soldier, NVA, and they were putting them in body bags. And I couldn't talk. They were already putting me in a body bag, and the zipper was coming up, and I couldn't tell this guy, hey, I'm still alive, man. I'm still alive. And my buddy, Jerry Cottenham, he went and got a doctor, grabbed him, and he made that doctor feel my heartbeat. When I felt that doctor's hand on my chest, I spit in his face. That's the only sign that I had, the only strength that I had to let him know that I was still alive. Where did we find such men? We find them where we've always found them, in our villages and towns, on our city streets, in our shops and on our farms. I have one more Vietnam story, and the individual in this story was brought up on a farm outside of Correo in DeWitt County, Texas, and he is here today. I learned of his story, which had been overlooked or buried for several years. It has to do with the highest award our nation can give, the Congressional Medal of Honor given only for service above and beyond the call of duty. It took 13 years for me to be recognized. But during those 13 years, I worked hand in hand with the Air Force, the Marines, the SEALs. I was an advisor to the Reserve Units, the National Guard. And my greatest accomplishment was to see that the officers and the non-commissioned officers work together. Wherever you're at, in civilian clothes or in uniform, we work together. We never let each other down. There was one question that I know you wanted to ask, but you didn't ask, and I'm gonna answer it for you. Would you do it over again? 
I see some heads nubbing over there. I'll answer you in this manner. There'll never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep me from doing what I did. We should never look at color of skin. The only color we should look at, right there, red, white, and blue. We're all Americans. I'm proud to be an American. And even prouder that I earned the privilege to wear the green beret. I live by the motto duty. A true American hero. I noticed on the internet that somebody asked the question, why wasn't his life story made into a movie? Somebody else answered and said it was. It's called Rambo. <laughs> he ended up being shot seven times, bayoneted in both arms, holding his intestines. They fired an RPG. It went off right next to him. His body was riddled with shrapnel, and still he was loading. U.S. injured military personnel into the helicopter. Amen. You say, how did he fight him off? He, fought, he would fight him hand-to-hand combat, only had a knife. This is what the witnesses said. And he'd take one guy out, seize his AK-47, and fire until it was empty, and then fight somebody else and take their weapon and fight, and that went on for six hours. Now you say, why do you show us a video like that? Because I want you to see what went into the founding of this nation, what has kept us and preserved us all of these years. Amen. Moses did not want the unity of the nation of Israel to be disrupted. He insisted the three other tribes cross over and then fight with Israel lest they discourage their brothers and sisters. And then, if they wanted to return, he said, you can. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, as the Lord has said to your servants, so will we do. We'll cross over Orm before the Lord into the land of Canaan. But the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side, Jordan. So Moses gave them the country they wanted and agreed, just like God does, that if you want to settle for second best, you can. If you don't want to make a mark with your life and make your life count, that's your decision. But God is saying, don't discourage others who want to be everything they can for God. The early church showed up for every prayer meeting, showed up every day to worship, showed up every day for fellowship, showed up and had passion for God. And that's significant and important. So I conclude today by simply saying, don't settle for less than you should because it's going to cost you anyway. You're going to have to go fight anyway. You might as well get something out of it. You might as well be who God called you to be. Because the price is not going to be any lesser just because you decided not to be all in. In fact, the price will be greater. And this 4th of July, I'm reminded that that's what made our nation great.
is people who were united and people who had passion. And you and I are the army of the Lord. How dare we allow anybody in the secular community to be more passionate about things that will not last than we are about the God of eternity that we serve. How dare we as believers who are supposed to be models of all that God himself stands for. How dare we begin to model ourselves after the world. God forgive us. Forgive us for being so divided. Forgive us for being so arrogant. Forgive us for believing the lie that this world offers anything that's worth wasting our time on. And God, help us to be everything we can for you. Would you stand with me right now, please? So this extended 4th of July weekend, I hope you'll have a great time with your family. I hope you'll even take the time to find another believer and connect with them and go eat a piece of barbecue together. Go catch a gar in the bayou or speckle trout out on the lake or do something. Go watch a game. But don't do it by yourself. Call somebody over. Another believer. And make other believers know that they count to you. And they matter. And take the effort to show them that. And the time. And be passionate about God. And before you sit down to eat your barbecue or your fried trout or whatever it is you're going to eat, say, let's pray first and thank God for his blessings and favor on our lives and on this nation. Can somebody say amen? Would you come and join me?